Hello and welcome to Tricycle Talks. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle, the Buddhist Review. Our guest this episode is South Korea's famous Zen teacher, Hanem Sunim, who has been dubbed the Twitter monk after his account garnered more than one million followers. In 2015, he founded the School of Broken Hearts and Soul, where he offers both traditional Buddhist instruction and classes designed to help people with the painful parts of life, such as bullying, bereavement, anger management, and dating violence. And at the end of 2018, his second book, the international bestseller Love for Imperfect Things, How to Accept Yourself in a World Striving for Perfection, was released in English. All of Hanem Sunim's efforts are aimed at making the Dharma more accessible and relevant to a new generation. We talk about the state of Buddhism in South Korea, why he created the School of Broken Hearts, and how he's managed to reach a new audience in a country where interest in Buddhism has been on the decline. Heyman Sunim, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. So you really do break the mold for a Zen monk. Uh, you were educated at Berkeley, Princeton, and Harvard. Uh, you have a million Twitter followers to whom you dispense very practical advice. You founded something called the School for Broken Hearts, which helps those struggling in life, which probably includes all of us. So what's going on here, and how do your fellow monks view all this? When I was a college professor up in uh, Massachusetts, um, it was, you know, after 4 p.m., I would come back to my office, and then I had this sense of uh, longing. I just wanted to communicate with uh, somebody uh, in our in my own na- native language, Korean. So I started doing Twitter, you know, and then uh, at first I didn't know how to do this. So I just follow what, you know, other famous Twitter people, uh, like famous people like Obama, you know, president was doing it. They practically, they just basically talked about what they had for lunch and whom they met and things like that. So I first tweeted uh, where I went and <laughs> whom I, you know, I had lunch with, things like that. And then I realized this is really, really boring. You know, who would ever be interested <laughs> in this kind of material? So I started giving out uh, like uh, stuff that I was able to, uh, realized while I was doing a little bit of you know, mindfulness meditations. So I share those kind of messages with them. And people uh, begin to respond really you know, positively. And then a year later, I went to Seoul while I was doing my postdoc. And I was having sabbatical. I offer like a free meditation kind of psychotherapy-ish, you know, retreat uh, every other weekend. And But it became really, really popular. Uh, people wanted to have their voice heard so they would share, you know, their life story. But uh, in this like busy, you know, life in Seoul, it's very difficult to find somebody who's going to listen to you. So this bringing psychology aspect into spiritual practice, people really love it. And from that experience, I was able to write this book, you know, the things you can see only when you slow down. And then that book became really popular in Korea. And then I realized that maybe this is something that I need to do. So I started the School of Broken Heart. Okay, why don't you tell us something about the School for Broken Hearts or the School of Broken Hearts? What sort of classes do you offer there? We offer all kinds of classes, like 
people who just lost their family members. We have a program for young people struggling to find a job, but they weren't able to find a good job. So they had a very uh, low self-esteem kind of experience, and we have a program just for that. And we have a program for parents raising a child with disabilities. We have a program for uh, people originally had lived in outside Seoul, now living inside the Seoul. So we have a program for that. All kinds of programs. <laughs> So I understand that you do work with some psychologists. Is that right? Yes, we have uh, 50, you know, psychotherapists, you know, teachers. And what would you say that you as a monk might offer that a therapist would not? I can answer uh, some of the spiritual questions, you know, questions like, I wonder what happened after when we die, things like that, you know, more spiritual in nature. So that's, you know, one of the characteristics of our school in that it not only offers healing and comforting, you know, psychologically uh, courses geared toward, you know, healing, but also uh, courses for uh, spiritual practice. So we do offer a mindfulness meditation class, different type of spiritual classes. So this all took off very quickly. I mean, how did your life change? I mean, you're a Zen monk, you're an academic, you're teaching at Hampshire College. Uh, within a few short years, you become a household name in Korea, and then you started to experience similar success here in the United States. Did you just go with it, or was that quite an adjustment for you? Well, it was something that I never planned <laughs> or expected. However, you know, I'm very happy that I can actually help people, you know. When I was a college professor, I felt like I couldn't really talk about the real issues. I was a scholar, so I had to read, you know, Song Dynasty or Tang Dynasty Chinese manuscript and talk about some very uh, esoteric, you know, Buddhist stuff, uh, which will care only uh, 10 people in the whole world. <laughs> but now I feel like I can actually talk about things that matter to everyday human life. Yeah, it's not often really that a Zen monk communicates with the laity with the sort of casual ease that you do. You went from being a scholar and uh -huh. a Zen monk to relating to people where they were, their everyday lives, and you were offering very practical advice, and you were getting into their lives with them. And you also get very personal and talk about your own life. So an issue like low self-esteem comes up again and again. Why? Great questions. When I first became a monk, I thought that I would just meditate and become enlightened <laughs> and something like that. You know, that was my idea. And then um, I did, you know, do a number of uh, retreats. However, while I was working for my master's temple, I realized that every Sunday, uh, the parishioner, you know, they would come, lay people would come. And after the Dharma talk, you know, whatever the service we offer, uh, they would love to come to my room and start having tea with me. So as we are having a tea, you know, the laymen and laywomen in their 40s and 50s and 60s, back then I was only 20-something, they would, you know, talk about, like, uh, you know, relationship problems, talk about, you know, trouble that they are having with their children, you know, talk about the failure of their business. Then I realized that, oh, you know, Buddhist monk, one of my, you know, obligations is to cultivate compassion, 
And then compassion can be cultivated in the midst of everyday life. Some Zen monk they prefer to do a lot more meditation and then cultivate, you know, compassion. However, I think that it can go the other way around as well. You know, while you are, you know, cultivating compassion, this can actually strengthen your、uh, wisdom to know your true nature, the emptiness of your、uh, inherent self. So the name of your most recent book is "Love for Imperfect Things." Why do you think so many people struggle with perfectionism? I mean, the point here is that、uh, we love people as they are and all of their imperfections. Where we do have a habit of expecting perfection from either ourselves or others. Why do you think that is? It seems to be as pervasive in Korea、uh, as it is here. Right.、Um, I think we all want to be good at something, you know. So there's nothing wrong trying very hard to be good at something. However, sometimes、uh, we tend to set the bar, you know, really, really high and almost impossible to reach. And once you do that, then there's inner critics. Especially if you were、um, grown up in a family where your parents were very critical <laughs> of you, and then、uh, even though your parents already passed away,、uh, you internalize that you know in inner critics, and so always telling you that you are not doing well, this is wrong, you know,、uh, even though there is no one. Uh, criticizing you,、uh, so I just wanted to say just two things. The first thing is, oftentimes the idea of perfection only lies within、uh, your own thoughts.、Uh, I remember、uh, I did a like a radio program in Korea just briefly, and then when I first started, somebody told me that I should. Speak in a low voice.、Uh, for men, a low voice sounds much more attractive and believe believable. <laughs> so I try to intentionally try to、uh, speak in a low voice. However, I had to just keep re-recording again and again, you know, because in my mind it was not perfect. However, my producer at some point he basically said, "Sunim, with all due respect, nobody cares," you know. <laughs> so I realized that the perfection is only、uh, within my mind. You know, nobody else cares. Okay, you've also said that your main teacher was imperfect. He had a short temper, for example, but that allowed you to be easier on yourself. Why is that? Oh, <laughs>、um, I really, really love my teacher. He knows that he's not perfect. Because he knows that he's not perfect, he can easily forgive other people, and he thinks that mistake is part of our life.、Um, but at first, when I first met my teacher, I thought that you know, how come you know he has a hot temper? You know, <laughs> how come he doesn't behave like the way? Uh, you know my idea of what what a perfect monk should be. You know, however, as I was getting older and more mature as a Buddhist monk, I realized that、uh, the kind of attribute you know that my master has is very very valuable、uh, because he's not perfect. You know, he can actually get along with a lot of other monks, and because of that, our temple has you know usually seven or eight you know nuns and monks. We are living together, which. Is very、um, special in the United States. So I suppose there could be a danger, on the other hand, in thinking that your teacher is perfect. Do you have anything to、absolutely. say about that? Absolutely, yes, absolutely. I think、um, once we idealize your guru or your teachers, when we are admiring someone, 
than uh, whatever the characteristics of that person, we aspire to become that person. So for that end, I think guru yoga, you know, that kind of uh, practice works. On the other hand, if your teacher happened to be a really bad person, (laughs) uh, because, you know, this person has also human needs, you know, Uh, they are not a a man or woman before being a monk and nun. So uh, if you are just idealize this person, then you will soon become uh, disappointed. And once you become disappointed, there is a chance that you may become bitter and leave the whole practice altogether. That's very unfortunate. So I think if you are approaching Buddhism or approaching any meditation teacher with a more realistic mindset, then uh, you can uh, aspire to become that great teacher. While uh, if you see some faults in that person, then you realize that that's his human side. So part of perfectionism, or what goes with it most often, is an abject fear of failure. So you do talk about failure in the book. Can you say something about your own experience with that and the experience of students who come to you with that fear and what the antidote is? I think if we learn something from any kind of failure, it's not really a failure. Uh, So I would ask myself, you know, what did I learn from this experience of failure? Uh, I remember uh, when I finished my graduate school, applying to become a professor, uh, I uh, applied to many different places. And then, but the first uh, school that I really, really wanted to get a job, that school asked me to come and interview. Uh, That was my first interview. And of course, because it was first interview, I didn't do well, you know, I was just a little bit terrible. And and then I realized that one of the reasons why I didn't do well is because I thought that uh, I just have to do my best without thinking what they were looking for. So from then onward, I tried to really uh, research what each school is looking for and then try to show some aspect of me that I can actually accomplish the job they are describing. And so what, when people come to you, what do you tell people uh, who, who tend to fear failure and find it crippling, the fear? Uh, so what, what sort of advice do you give? My first advice it would be just acknowledge that you have a fear rather than uh, saying that I'm not afraid. Just accept, accept it and em- embrace that you have a fear and just let it be there, you know? And then... Uh, take a deep breath. <laughs> what about telling somebody to just go ahead and fail? Yeah, that's a great advice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe we can trade positions for a moment. <laughs> right, right. Just go ahead and fail, and then you'll learn something. You know, either you go forward and with the feeling of fear, or you trace back and just do nothing, you know, just to feel comfortable, you know. But if you go ahead, then you will learn something, you know. That's when the growth happened, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically. Uh, so fear is an opportunity for you to grow. One thing that was on my mind when I was reading the book, I mean, it's very popular in Korea, number one bestseller. Um, it's also quite popular here now. 
Are you noticing that there are differences in emphasis uh, among your Korean and American students? In other words, are certain questions more commonly asked by Westerners as opposed to Koreans, or is it pretty much across the board the same? Mm. Self-esteem, for example. I mean, uh, obviously, it's something that Americans and Westerners in general talk a lot about. Is it the same in Korea? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of you know, glad that you asked that question is because uh, I was just uh, giving a talk in my Buddhist temple uh, in Japan. And uh, actually, this temple is you know, uh, catered mostly for Korean-American and Korean uh, immigrants. Uh, a lot of Korean-American kids are asking me, you know, while I was in my home, you know, I was told to be respectful of my elders. Uh, and never raised my voice, you know, things like that. But when I, uh, when I graduated from high school and when I graduated from the university, I, you know, found myself in an American society where I have to be vocal. I have to uh, promote myself. Uh, and I find it very challenging. You know, how do I go about doing that? Uh, I do get that kind of questions uh, among Asian community, uh, how to trans- make the transition from um, very quiet and introverted, uh, meek person and going out to the world uh, and not afraid of dispute, <laughs> not af- afraid of... Confrontation. Yeah, confrontations. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, a lot of the advice that you give, uh, you give via Twitter. As I said, you have over a million followers. Some people have begun referring to you as the Twitter monk. Do you ever find your prominent role on the internet to be problematic for you? Well, if I do it too much, then anything will be it will become problematic, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so I don't spend a lot of time, uh, you know, reading other people's tweets, you know, to be honest. Because if I do that, then that will be my full-time job. Right. And also, I learn not to really uh, care too much about how other people think of me. Because oftentimes, it is their reflections. If you see, Their projection? Yeah, projection. Also, if they don't like certain aspect of me, then oftentimes, it is because they have that aspect within and so we often go to a meeting where some people say negative thing about somebody else, but at the end of the day, you realize that that person's uh, remarks about that person actually reflects more about that person than the person he was criticizing. Well, one question I would ask then is, how do you stay plugged in without losing your mind? Because social media can be such a black hole. Do you have any rules that you follow or do you have a specific time that you go online? Yeah, I would go on uh, just two or three times a day. Uh, So uh, one in the morning and then uh, usually in the afternoon. And, And then I have to do other things. You're listening to Tricycle's editor and publisher, James Shaheen, in conversation with Heyman Sunim, author of Love for Imperfect Things, How to Accept Yourself in a World Striving for Perfection. Did you know in Tricycle's online classroom, you can now join Heyman Sunim for his six-week course, Awakening Here and Now. Heyman Sunim will offer instruction in Cohen practice, and speak candidly about how these practices enable him to break through doubt and confusion to see the world differently. 
The course starts January 13th, and Tricycle Podcast listeners can receive a special $25 discount when they enroll with the code TRIPOD25. You can enroll now at learn.tricycle.org. Now, let's return to James Shaheen in conversation with Heyman Sunim. Okay, listen, since you're so well-known for giving advice, I wonder if you'd mind answering some of the questions that the Tricycle staff have given me. Um, Would you mind? Oh, please. Okay, these are questions that the people posing them will remain anonymous, but they are from our staff. The first one is, I am a pleaser. The need to please comes from the desire to be a source of strength for others, but it can be exhausting and often leaves me depleted. How can I do both? be a refuge for others without bypassing my own needs? I think we have uh, first and foremost obligation to take good care of ourselves. So, um, you know, uh, I think having the awareness about where my limit is uh, and then if I am going over the limit, then I think you should learn to say no. I'm sorry, you know, this is... I, I have to go home or I'm getting really exhausted. You know, I have already uh, made commit to many different uh, responsibility. I'm sorry, I cannot do that. So I think it's important to say no. Uh, learning to say no is a very uh, important uh, life lesson for that particular person. Okay, I'll move on to the next question. I often find myself comparing myself to my peers in all aspects of life, behaviorally, professionally, financially, physically, and so forth. And more often than not, that tendency to compare ends up with feelings of self-doubt or low self-esteem. There's that word again. Is there any way to adapt this pattern of self-comparison into something more skillful, or should it be abandoned altogether? I think one of the good ways to compare yourself is to compare yourself to the person you were a year ago or two years ago. So instead of comparing yourself to somebody else, you would compare yourself to two years ago, three years ago, and then look back and how much you have grown. So I would encourage that kind of comparison because you know if you start comparing yourself to other people, even if you become really, really successful, surely there is more successful people. And this is a one sure way to f- feel uh, lousy about yourself. So compare yourself to yourself uh, in the past. And then another um, advice that I would give is... Um, Find uh, meaning uh, and little happiness in your daily life. Like, for example, like today, you know, uh, it was uh, warmer than yesterday. <laughs> and then, there, you know, in the morning, it's bright, you know, blue sky. Uh, and then I was able to have a coffee and then listening to my favorite, you know, radio stations. And I felt very peaceful and content. Uh, like knowing exactly what matters to you. And then uh, doing the, those things that makes you happy, uh, focus on that, that's going to create sense of well-being. So rather than looking other people's and what they are doing to make themselves happy, I think you can turn that energy to yourself and become more self-aware about what it is that's going to make you happy. You give a lot of familial advice, so this question falls into that category. One of our staff writes, 
My father is the best dad I could hope to have, but with one notable exception, his attitude toward women. This past year, my family has had conversations about gender and power sparked by the Me Too movement, and they almost always end with my mom and me feeling angry and unheard. I decided to tell my dad personal stories about being sexually harassed, but even that didn't seem to register with him. How can I communicate with him so that I feel heard? How can I prevent my anger from harming our relationship? I realized early on that it is very difficult or nearly impossible to change our parents. From their eyes, we are just a little kids, you know, no matter how much we have learned and studied. So if we are making a lot of effort to change our parents, the end result will be、uh, lots of frustrations, unfortunately.、Um, but I was touched that you were able to talk about your own personal, you know, Uh, story experience, and even that, if your father, you know, responded without compassion, without caring for you, then I don't know.、Uh, maybe rather than try to change him, I think we are all speaking, you know, within our own limited experience. So rather than trying to change him,、uh, we should try to understand him, you know, where he's coming from. Uh, if I begin to understand him more deeply, then somehow I can live with what it is. But if you do not understand where he is coming from、uh, and try to bring where I am coming from, then there will be always some kind of conflict. Doesn't he have some responsibility to listen to her as well? And、um, sure, she can't change him, and she's feeling frustrated. But it seems to run a bit deeper than that. This is a really important issue, and it's her own father. Is this something she must accept, or are there is there any other approach she might take? I agree with you. You know, her father should be more sympathetic, and you know, trying to understand where she, you know, what kind of experience she went through. Unfortunately, in this case,、uh, you know, the, her father is not doing that. It's very, you know, unfortunate and disheartening, but it's very difficult, you know, for us to change anybody else. We hope that just because you know we are very close to our family member, we think that we already know our family member, but oftentimes we don't, you know, especially with our parents. So see where he's coming from, you know. Why does he say that those kind of remark, hurtful remarks? Like the way he says,、um, rather than trying to make him understood my point of view, by understanding where your father is coming from, you may be able to accept the current situation a little bit better.、Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of the book is about, as its title indicates, about understanding that we're imperfect. Everybody's imperfect. And to learn to accept, tolerate, love each other despite those imperfections. But aren't there times when we really should cut off contact with particular people? In this case, it's her father, so she can't,、uh, and it's not even advisable. But what about a limit to what you can tolerate in this case?、Um, I think we have first. Duty to protect ourselves physically and emotionally. So, if you are constantly being exposed to any kind of 
very negative and hurtful situation than to say enough is enough. But when it comes to your parents, <laughs> it's very tricky. Although some people choose not to see their parents, but it's very difficult, you know. Like, for example, in my book, I talked about my father. I had a very uh, unusual experience with my father because he doesn't care about himself, but he cares more about me and my younger brothers. And I just wonder why he's doing this, you know. How come uh, he had to go to go see a doctor, but he refused to go to see a doctor Then, you know, as I you know, tried to learn more about my father, I realized that uh, while he was growing up, my grandfather paid attention to my father's older brother, but not to my father. So um, he felt he's not important. So he became very used to that kind of feeling. And so when I understood where my father is coming from, uh, there's a sense of love I felt you know, for him. So if we can try to understand where that person is coming from, although the current situation is very difficult to accept, your heart may become softer. You, know, you may find a little more space to allow it. Okay. One of our staff asks, There are too many things I feel passionate about, so I try to do them all, but then I exhaust myself and become sick. How do I find balance and still pursue everything I want to pursue? If that's impossible, how do I decide what's most important? Uh, I would say that make a list, you know, so with the list, see which one has a higher priority. And so I will, you know, suggest that you go ahead and then do the, those things are on the top of your list. But while having this awareness that life is actually longer than you think, so you have some time to explore. You don't have to do everything within this year, you know. So um, I would just enjoy this, you know, path of exploration. So um, just do it step by step. Well, you yourself are an academic. You're a Zen priest. You're a writer. You are active on social media. I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, in the book, you say, I look around, I ask myself if I'm doing too much, but I realize that the world isn't busy, my mind is. Do you want to say something about that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Did I get that right? Oh, yes, oh, yes, okay. yes. The world never complains how busy it is. Uh, my right. mind complains it. Uh, so we think that you know, world exists apart from our mind. But if you really practice, cultivate it, then you realize that there is no world apart from your mind. I see a cup here, and the awareness of the cup, it cannot be separated from the object of cup itself, you know? So in, in, if you go deeply, and then you realize that everything that you see and become aware of, it is your mind. So here we are hearing the Zen priest offering Buddhist teachings. You don't have to be a Buddhist to read the book, but you do at certain points sort of tip into the deeper teachings. For instance, uh, the cup does not exist independently in and of itself. So I take it when you give Dharma talks, they sound a bit different from the books that you write. Is that correct? Yeah, depending on the question that I get. Um, so... I would love to talk about <laughs> ultimate nature. Um, these are the kind of things that I always think about. 
However, uh, I realized that this is not for everyone. So, you know, I was very happy to be asked by the Tricycle magazine that uh, I will get to offer online course. On, so I will, you know, talk about how to, you know, penetrate and get into, become awakened to your true nature. There's one more question from the staff. I wouldn't want to neglect it. This person writes, often when I finish a creative project, I feel a great sense of accomplishment. But by the next day, I already start to feel like I'm being unproductive. How can I learn to give myself credit for the work I have already finished? I think, you know, at some point we have to think about what's the point of our existence, you know? Is it for just working hard all the time, accomplishing, you know, things constantly? <laughs> Or are we here to learn something? Are we here to cultivate compassion and have a deeper relationship with people around us and uh, to our nature, beautiful, you know, nature? Or um, to my own, you know, mind? Um, so I would say that You don't have to uh, accomplish so many work to feel good about yourself. You can give yourself some time off. You can go meet your friends. And this can give you so much you know, happiness. In other words, work is important, but there are more to the life than work. So you have quite a range. You talk about common problems that we hear In the context of therapeutic practice, for instance, low self-esteem or fear of failure or perfectionism, these sorts of everyday issues that we face, challenges that we face. And so you're reaching a lot of people. On the other hand, Buddhism in Korea has been a bit in decline, and half of the population does not affiliate with any one particular religion. So you begin with these very everyday problems. Do you feel in any way that you're leading people, perhaps, to the teachings, the sort of teachings that you give at the Zendo? Yes, absolutely. Uh, all of my books, uh, starting out as uh, more th therapeutic and everyday practical advice, but uh, if you just look at the uh, later chapters, it ends up being spiritual practice. <laughs> so... Uh, Uh, if you are interested in spiritual practice, you should always read uh, from the last chapter of my book. <laughs> so hopefully people will become more and more, you know, interested in spiritual practice and explore, you know, who they are, you know. I noticed that in the book, uh, you begin with those problems that people face on a daily basis. In fact, you very directly address young people at some point, yet you tell me your audience is often people in their 40s and 50s. And you're right, as the book progresses, you go more deeply into the teachings. For instance, just as you spoke about mind uh, is more a characteristic of how you are in later chapters. Is it your intention to interest the public once again in Buddhism? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> That's my uh, skillful means. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what I really appreciate about it is that there is nothing judgmental in the book, really. I mean, you're willing to meet people where they are. Were you surprised by the success of your books? And were you surprised by your million-plus Twitter followers and uh, your million-plus followers on the Korean version of Facebook? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm so surprised. I was very surprised. And I realized that peoples are hungry for uh, religious or spiritual teachers who's not afraid of talking about everyday life, everyday problems. I remember when I went to Germany, I had this 
uh, Christian mystics uh, who felt very disappointed when one of the top authority of Christian, German Christian um, church, uh, when women ask, oh, I just lost my husband, I don't know what to do. And then the, um, that top leader basically gave very uh, pedantic, um, boring, <laughs> uh, theological you know, answer, you know, un- like disconnected from the reality. So, yeah, I think what people are you know, asking is, relate to us, relate to my life. You know, how is it going to benefit my life if you actually practice meditations, for example? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I think, I think I've asked all the questions I have here. Do you have any message for the American audience based on your experience here and your connection with the place that you'd give here, but not necessarily in Korea? Uh, I would say that um, I feel like there are two different camps <laughs> of American Buddhists. On one hand, uh, they are very devotional. Uh, they follow traditional like you know, Buddhist rituals and whatnot. For those people, I would say uh, maybe you can include some of the critical aspects, the spirit, you know, and don't walk into that tradition blindly. And don't project your inner needs onto your teachers. And another group is they are approaching it with very practical American sense. Uh, I will doubt about this until I you know, see that it actually works. Uh, for those people, I would invite that uh, maybe because Buddhism has been around for thousands of years, maybe because they have something to offer, you know, have a little bit more faith and trust in their traditions and maybe follow some of the things that they are asking. You will, you may learn something. Well, thank you so much. That's a great way to wrap up. Heyman Sunim, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Whoever you are, uh, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you be peaceful and always be protected. You've been listening to Hanem Sunim, author of Love for Imperfect Things, How to Accept Yourself in a World Striving for Perfection, here on Tricycle Talks. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Write us at feedback at tricycle.org or leave us a review on your podcast player. Tricycle Talks is produced by Paul Ruest at Argo Studios in New York City. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle, the Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening.